If the Bible is interpreted accurately and in its entirety, it doesn't contradict true science and it proves itself to be a fully reliable source of information concerning who we are, where we came from, why we're here, and most importantly, where we're headed. And the greatest advantage the Bible has over other religious manuscripts is that it doesn't have to be accepted on blind faith because it goes out of its way to prove itself. Contrary to popular belief, the Bible is not a religion. Religion is a set of beliefs and practices that are man-made for the purposes of controlling man. Whether for good reasons or bad, it's still something that's made by man to control people. And that's why every religion has its own religious practices and routines, traditions and customs that are founded on beliefs that have to be accepted on faith. And most of the time, that faith is blind. But the Bible shows evidence of being supernaturally engineered in ways that no human on earth could have possibly done. And it proves itself in some very astonishing ways. And as I said before, if it's interpreted accurately and in its entirety, it has absolutely no objective to control man in the name of religion. None. As a matter of fact, it surprises a lot of people who get into it just how much the God of that Bible hates religion, even when religion is for him. Because religion gets in the way of what he really wants, a relationship with the people of his creation. This is something that most Christians today seem to have forgotten, which is why they probably don't have the impact on society that they used to have. There are more churches in America today than there have ever been before in American history. But you can't tell by reading the headlines, turning on the TV, or observing our officials in Washington. And it's very unfortunate that so many people lump the Bible in together with religion. When they do that, they don't realize that they're actually giving religion way too much credit. People also give science way too much credit when they say that science is built only on fact while religion is built only on faith. While the foundation of science is built on fact, even scientists will admit that they don't have all of the facts. So when they draw conclusions from the facts that are available, that's a form of faith. Now, it's not blind religious faith, but it's still faith. So a more accurate view of science in relevance to religion would be that science is built on fact and extended on faith, while religion is built on blind faith and nothing else. But drawing conclusions from the facts you have in front of you, whether that information is complete or incomplete, drawing conclusions from that is not a religious act. It's an act of scientific thinking. And from the incomplete information we've been scientifically gathering through thousands of years, people hold one of three views. Many believe that life on Earth billions of years ago began as simple proteins and amino acids. Through millions of years of evolution, we slowly evolved from that into what we are today. Now, we don't know if that's true, but if it is, then that's just the way it is. It's not religion, it's science. Others believe that the way things are today, physically for humans at least, are the way they've always been, and that only our technology has evolved, while we, ourselves, have always been the way we are today, and that we have no beginning. If that's true, then that's just the way it is. It's not a religion, it's science. Others believe that a higher intelligence, far beyond anything we're capable of understanding, created us. If that's true, then that's just the way it is. It's not a religion, it's science. Now, until we have solid and complete evidence to support any one of those views, those views must be accepted by some amount of faith, because we don't have all of the facts. Some people might think we have enough, but enough isn't all, is it? The universe is a very big place. Until you know everything, you're going to be applying a certain amount of faith to come to whatever conclusion you hold. Everyone's view of reality is held together by a certain amount of faith. No one has all of the answers. Not the atheist, not the agnostic, not the religious, 
not anyone. But everyone does have some of the answers, and those answers are built around observations and fact reception, and then from that we fill in the blanks. Filling in those blanks is a form of faith, and everyone does it. No one knows everything. Of course, the more facts you have, the higher your chances are of filling in those blanks accurately. The less facts you have, the lower your chances are. But until you have all of the facts, there will always be blanks to fill. And filling in those blanks is a form of faith, and everyone does it. But blind faith is something completely different. Blind faith is dangerous. Blind faith is filling in those blanks without any facts at all, or disregarding the facts that are there. It's putting into those blanks what you want to be there instead of what should be there. It's plunging in without any facts and molding your own view of reality to fit what you want it to be rather than what it actually is. Blind faith in any area of life is extremely foolish and dangerous. And it's especially dangerous when it comes to believing in a higher intelligence that created us. Even though that view has a legitimate scientific foundation, a lot of folks who build on that foundation feel that they have to leave their brain at the door and swallow everything they've heard about that higher intelligence on blind faith. And this is when a legitimate scientific belief becomes a religion. The Bible says a lot about faith, and it's essential in many areas of the Christian life. But the kind of faith the Bible talks about is not blind. This is why I hold the view that the Bible itself is not a religion. What people have done with it may be religion. How people have reacted to it may be religion. And what people have tried to shove down your throat because of it may be religion. But the Bible in and of itself is not a religion. Whatever view people choose to hold about reality, if they believe in a higher intelligence, deciding for themselves who he is and what he thinks and reacting to that is extremely foolish and dangerous if it's done by blind faith. And depending on what they've determined, it could even be deadly. This is one area in which people should never take anyone else's word for it. That kind of blind faith is what killed the Branch Davidians of Waco. It's also what flew two jets into the World Trade Center on 9-11. The massacre at Waco took place when I was a senior in high school. One of the things that kept running through my mind back then was that those kids died believing that their dad knew what he was talking about. And I think about other kids who were brought up to believe things that may or may not be true. It'd be nice if all of us could sit back and just rest confident that all of our parents loved us enough to tell us the truth. But that hope could easily be shared by the children of Christians as well as the children of atheists, Muslims, Buddhists, Wiccans, Kabbalists, Scientologists or the children of anyone from any number of various beliefs. During my first year in college, I remember parking in front of a daycare center just before going to my next class. And as I saw the kids playing around the playground, I thought about how all of these kids had parents who were going to my college, people who had a wide variety of views about life and reality. And then I thought about the kids who died in Waco. And then I thought about me when I was a kid. I started asking myself some tough questions, and I got spooked. When it comes to believing in a higher intelligence, how do we really know that there really is one? How do we really know? And for those of us who are certain that there is a higher intelligence, how do we know that our view of who he is is even close to being accurate? How do we really know? No matter what we believe, we'd have to admit that a lot of it has to do with what we were taught. And with all the various opinions, and all the demanding voices, and all the supposed scholars and the emotional controversies that surround this topic, out of fear, it's an area of thinking where I tried to start from scratch. 
I think it's probably a good idea for everyone to do that at least once. It seems most people these days are comfortable believing things while knowing they could be wrong. It doesn't seem to bother them. They just say to people, well, this is what I believe, or this is how I was brought up to believe. And they just leave it at that. They don't go anywhere with it. And that wasn't enough for me. I lived in the real world, and I wanted some real answers. I didn't want to believe. I wanted to know. So the first thing I did was try to determine for myself whether or not there actually was a higher intelligence who created everything. While not trying to establish who that creator was, not trying to prove if the creator was a he, a she, or an it, or a them, or if the creator was the same creator of the Bible, I wanted to start from scratch. So I didn't, I didn't want to compare my observations of reality to what Christians have said who the creator was or what any other religion had said about the creator. That came later, but my first step was to just determine the existence of a creator. Now, for me, this first step was probably the easiest one to make because I've always been a huge fan of science and especially astronomy. I was a huge sci-fi geek, too, and sometimes one of the pluses of being a science fiction fan is that it'll lead you into studying science fact. And since I was a kid, I had several issues of National Geographic magazine that focused on astronomy. I had read countless scientific articles throughout the years, watched several documentaries about the universe and how it works, and determining that the universe was created by superior intelligence was never a giant leap of faith for me, because the universe behaves like a finely tuned machine with a goal, and that goal being to make it possible for one planet to sustain life, ours. Now, to avoid some confusion, let me clarify something here. There are two different types of studies that often get confused as the same thing, and they aren't. The study of how the universe in its present state slowly evolved and came into existence is commonly known as cosmology. This is where you get the Big Bang Theory and things like that. Since cosmologists use the word evolve when they talk about the formation of stars and whole galaxies, people lump together cosmology's Big Bang Theory with biology's theory of evolution, which is something totally different. Biology is the study of life itself, whereas cosmology is the study of the cosmos, the universe. The Big Bang Theory begins in the middle of the universe, at the beginning of time. The theory of evolution begins on the planet Earth much later. So when you hear people talk about evolution, they're really talking about the evolution of life on the planet Earth, which is a study inside biology. Earlier, we talked about how everyone likes to fill in the blanks. And evolution is one of the theories out there that gets used a lot by the biologists to fill in some really big blanks. Whether or not those blanks are being filled in objectively or blindly is debatable. For me personally, I don't understand how biologists can continue to hold on to the theory of evolution, especially after they discovered DNA. Because DNA is the software to all of life's hardware. It's a language. It's a digital code, which means there had to be a programmer. But I don't want to get into the evolution debate here. Fortunately for us in this conversation, it doesn't really matter whether evolution is true or not. Because astronomers and cosmologists continue to make discoveries that make the planet Earth the luckiest planet in the entire universe, or at least the universe that they can see. Of course, if you're a scientist, you don't believe in luck. You believe in cause and effect. But the more they explore the universe and the nature of reality, the more they keep bumping into evidence of a creator which is something they don't want to do because in their minds, a creator means a god and a god means religion and religion isn't science. So to keep from doing that, they throw cause and effect out the window and talk about how lucky we are. You might be able to convince me that one or two anomalies in space accidentally wound up where they needed to be to make the conditions on earth favorable for life to exist. But you'll never convince me, ever, 
that everything in space accidentally wound up where it needed to be to make the conditions on Earth favorable for life to exist. And yet, the more they study the nature of the universe, the more they discover that that is exactly how it's set up. Our planet's position in the solar system is critical to make life possible here. We're already aware of the vast temperature differences in our hemispheres due to the distance of the sun from the surface of the planet. At the equator, there's hot jungles and deserts. At the poles, there's frozen snow and ice. We're also aware of the vast differences in temperature during the seasonal change. Just because our place on the planet gets a little closer to the sun during the summer and gets a little further away from it during the winter. So if the entire planet were in an orbit just a little closer to the sun or a little further away, it would change everything to an extreme that would be unlivable. So our position in the solar system is exactly where it needs to be. Another thing that would put the surface of our planet too close to the sun or too far away would be if the planet itself were a little bigger or a little smaller. So the size of our planet is exactly what it needs to be. What about the sun? If the sun were a little bigger, then we'd be a little closer, making the earth too hot. If the sun was a little smaller, then we'd be a little further away from it, making the earth too cold. The sun's gravitational pull on the earth would also change if the sun were a little bigger or a little smaller. So the size of our sun is exactly what it needs to be. The tides of our oceans are controlled by the gravitational pull of our moon. If the moon was a little bigger, then its gravitational pull would be a little greater, and the water traffic coming in and out of our harbors would be devastating. If the moon were a little smaller, then its gravitational pull would be less, causing our harbors to be stagnant. So the size of our moon is exactly what it needs to be. Another factor that affects the moon's gravitational pull is its distance from the Earth. So its position in Earth orbit is also exactly where it needs to be. You can run these numbers forever and it always turns out perfect whether you're looking at the thickness of the atmosphere, the thickness of the ozone, the thickness of the Earth's crust, the speed of the Earth's daily rotation, the speed of the Earth's yearly orbit around the sun, the speed of the moon's lunar cycle, the distance of our solar system from neighboring stars, the speed of our star cluster's orbit within the galaxy, our galaxy's position and connection with other galaxies, the way all of it moves and connects, all of it ties together. And if any one of those factors were different, even by a little bit, life here would be impossible. But that's outer space. It turns out the same is true with inner space. Scientists still don't know how or why atoms behave the way they do, at least not without filling in some really big blanks. But one thing they do know is that if they behaved any differently than the way they currently behave, we would disappear the same way people disappear on a TV screen after you've hit the off button. So not only would it seem that an outside force got everything started, but that same outside force is keeping it going. And that's why I've never had a problem believing in a creator, because my belief in blind luck can only go so far. All the so-called evidence for evolution is totally irrelevant. People can show me all the fossils and bones they want to. It doesn't matter. Because even if evolution is true, what stage of human evolution forced the rest of the entire universe, outer space and inner space, to behave so that human life could exist here? Now, the usual response I get to that question is that everything is perfectly balanced because life here evolved and adapted to fit its surroundings in order to survive. But if life could evolve and adapt to fit its surroundings, no matter what they were, then life would exist on every single asteroid, on every single moon, and on every single planet in the entire universe. And when I tell evolutionists that, I usually get a backtrack. And then they start talking about how certain favorable conditions must be met first, which actually kind of cancels out their argument and confirms mine, because those favorable conditions wouldn't exist if our planet was just a little bigger or a little smaller and so on and so forth. And how hard is it anyway 
to adapt to favorable conditions. I mean, what's so amazing about that? Which theory is built on logic and which theory requires more faith? Who's thinking rationally and who's making excuses? If we evolved from proteins and amino acids, we wouldn't have been able to do it anywhere but here. That's why I say it doesn't even matter whether evolution is true or not. I personally don't believe it is. But even if it is, it doesn't matter. Because there's no stage of our evolution that forced the rest of the universe to get in order so that life could exist here. So that's how I determined the existence of a creator. But that didn't tell me anything about who he is. Other than the fact that he's a genius who possesses great power and skill over matter and energy. He also apparently has great power and skill over time and space because scientists have discovered that not only did the universe have a beginning, but the empty space in which the universe occupies also had a beginning. They've also discovered that empty space isn't really empty, but that's a completely different science lesson for a whole other time. But space itself had a beginning that began simultaneously with matter and energy. Now, if you think that's incredible, get this. Scientists and mathematicians who study the nature of time have also discovered that time itself had a starting point. Now, please don't ask me how they know this. I'm sure you could Google it and find several scientific journals getting into the nitty-gritty of the details with all kinds of technical jargon, but the sum of their findings is that time itself had a starting point. It had a beginning. That matter and energy and the space that holds it had a beginning. So whoever it was that designed it, he can't be of this universe. He'd have to be outside of it. Since all four legs of the stool, matter, energy, time, and space, began simultaneously, then the creator would have to be completely free from and outside of and superior to everything we would call reality. And this is all by deductive reasoning, not blind faith. But it's deductive reasoning that most scientists won't touch because it leads them into what they think is the study of the supernatural. What they don't realize is that the word supernatural is a relative term that they have defined. If a supernatural intelligence created the entire universe, then the entire universe is supernatural. So they've been studying the supernatural all along. They just don't call it that. And this is where you should start thinking about what the word supernatural really means. When you hear that word, what normally comes to mind is spirits, angels, some kind of inferior sublevel reality without form. That's real, but not quite as real as our reality. But that perception isn't accurate. How could a being create a dimension of reality that's more real than his own? The complete opposite would have to be true. His reality would have to be more real than ours. We're the ones who exist in some kind of inferior sublevel reality, while his reality is more real or super real. That's what supernatural really means. We consider our dimension of reality to be natural because we understand it. His dimension of reality is natural too. But because it involves physics we don't understand, we call it supernatural. And as you think about that, the idea of a superior being from outside our dimension of reality should stop having a fantasy feel to it and start having a more scientific feel. If any of you have ever researched the concept of what scientists call hyperspaces, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who haven't, the gist of it is this. There are more spatial dimensions than the first three, and they call them hyperspaces or hyperdimensions. They're hard for us to imagine because we don't move in more than three dimensions, but we are aware of them mathematically. One way to attempt to understand the difference between a hyperdimensional space and a three-dimensional space is to try to imagine how confusing the second story of a building would be to a man who only exists in two dimensions. We'll call him Mr. Flat. 
He could get to rooms all around him on the first floor, but using a staircase or an elevator to get to the second floor would be something he can't comprehend because it would require movement within the third dimension, something he can't do. Something else that would confuse him would be a box because a box is an object that's more than two dimensions. A box in his presence would look like a flat square. If I tried turning it around so he could see all sides of it, he'd think the flat square was changing shape and morphing into another flat square. If I moved it upwards and then moved it back down in front of him, to him it would disappear and then reappear. Because by moving it up or down, I'd be moving it in a dimension that he doesn't share. So if our creator is above or independent of our three-dimensional space-time domain, and that's the premise, since matter, energy, time, and space had a simultaneous beginning, then it follows logically that he would have to be more than three dimensions. And if he were to stand right in front of me, only three of his dimensions would be visible to me because I'm only a three-dimensional person. I wouldn't be able to see all of him. And if he were to move in dimensions above the first three, I wouldn't be able to see him at all. But he'd still be there. And that's just if he were more than three dimensions. If he were more than ten dimensions, he'd be able to stand in front of me and millions of other people simultaneously. And none of us would see him. But he'd still be there. Now, as fascinating as all of this might be, it still doesn't tell us anything about who he is. Who is the creator? How do you filter out all of the noise of man-made religions and confusing contradictions? How do you logically find the creator in a world of illogical, man-made religions? There is a way. Since we now know that our three-dimensional space-time had a beginning, then we also know that the creator transcends our three-dimensional space-time. Therefore, any form of communication that he might have made to the earth should reflect that. Human beings are imprisoned inside a three-dimensional space-time. So, if the Creator chose to use human beings to communicate His message, the only way you can tell if that message is actually from the Creator is if the message itself shows evidence of being from outside time. So let's think about some conditions that a human-written manuscript would have to meet in order to prove itself to be beyond the dimensional scope of the human or human's who wrote it. Condition number one. If any of the text explains the nature of the universe, if it gets into physics or scientific discussions, all science within that text must be accurate even by today's standards because the message of that text is supposed to be from the Creator. For example, any manuscript promoting a flat earth or a moon made out of cheese should be discarded. If the scientific knowledge of the text is dated, that would be evidence that the message is not from the Creator who transcends time and space. All scientific knowledge within the text cannot be rendered obsolete by modern science. Now notice I said modern science, not modern scientific theory, but modern science. Condition number two. Since the Creator is outside time, then He is knowledgeable of all human history, even the history that hasn't happened yet. Time itself is a physical property that the Creator isn't bound to. So if a human written manuscript declares itself to be a message from the Creator, and if any of the text proclaims to prophesy the future, a future that is now our past, if those prophecies didn't come true in the exact manner in which they were foretold, then the message of that manuscript is not from the Creator. Movie directors and film editors are outside the timeline of their own movies when they make them. They know the end from the beginning of their movie. So when they talk to people about how the movie ends, they're not guessing. 
They know. If the Creator Himself used humans to get a message to the earth, and if He gave those humans details of future history, those details must be 100% accurate. Condition number three. Since the Creator is outside time, He's also aware of what happens to things once they've been placed inside time. Among the laws of physics is the second law of thermodynamics, which is called entropy. And entropy is the universal law that states all things inside time go from order to disorder. So the Creator would be aware of His message degrading with the passage of time once it's been recorded. So if He wanted that message to endure thousands of years once it's been recorded, what are some things that He would do to prevent degrading? Anyone who's into media knows the answer to that question. You spread out your information over a large bandwidth. Back in the 80s and 90s, when I was still recording on VHS tapes, you were given the option of recording an EP, which crammed six hours of video onto a single tape, or SP, which would increase the recording speed, increase the bandwidth, and it would spread out two hours of video over the whole tape. By doing that, you not only increase the quality of the video, but you minimize the chances of losing anything important should the tape get wrinkled. In six-hour mode, a bad wrinkle on a tape would ruin several minutes of video. In two-hour mode, a bad wrinkle would only ruin a few seconds. The same thing's still true today with digital technology. MP3s on your computer sound better when their byte rate is higher. The higher the byte rate, the more information there is being spread out across the bandwidth. A low byte rate might save room on your computer, but it won't sound very good. The same thing's true with television screens. Have you ever wondered why your computer screen was sharper and more clear than your television screen? It's because your computer screen has more pixels. That's also the difference between standard television and high definition. The high definition is more pixels. So if a creator is intelligent enough to create the entire universe, then he'd certainly know how to preserve his message. If his entire message is on a single page, then it probably won't last very long. If one page is lost, then the whole message is lost. But if the whole message is spread out on many pages, then the chance of that message enduring is higher. The more pages, the higher the endurance. The more bandwidth used, the better. And the reason why I'm making this a condition, folks, is because a creator who would put his whole message on a small bandwidth isn't smart enough to create the entire universe. Either that, or the message just isn't all that important to him, one or the other. So that's it. Three conditions that a human written manuscript would have to meet in order to prove itself to be beyond the dimensional scope of the human who wrote it. The science can't be dated, the prophecies have to be 100% accurate, and the message has to spread out over a large bandwidth to prevent signal loss. If a single human being wrote the text, it would have to meet all three of those conditions. But what if the text was written by more than one person? If that's the case, then we've got a fourth condition. If more than one human wrote the text, they all have to agree on everything. There cannot be any discrepancies or contradictions. If there's contradictions, then the message wasn't put together by a single creator, but from multiple human beings with their own agenda. Well, folks, the planet is full of human-written manuscripts, which claim to be a message from the Creator, but none of those manuscripts come even close to adhering to any of the conditions we just talked about. None of them. None except for one. We call it the Bible. The first condition was that the science couldn't be dated. There is not one place in the entire Bible, folks, where the science is dated. The Bible promoted a round earth. The Bible knew about the water cycles and how it worked long before the scientific community ever figured it out. The Bible talked about the paths of the seas, which later turned out to prove that oceans actually had currents. Even the book of Job hints that the stars in Orion's belt are held together by their own gravitational fields, something that wasn't known by astronomers until recently. 
The passage that most people point out as being scientifically dated is the creation scenario in Genesis. But thousands of years ago, many people believed that the earth rested on a stack of giant turtles. Others believed that the earth was nothing more than a giant egg that was laid by a cosmic bird like Rodan. Others believed that the planet was resting on the shoulders of an Olympic god. They thought the sun was a god too, a flaming chariot, and that all the stars were diamonds. The theories of that time period are endless, and all of them sound just as foolish as the next one. But while everyone else was believing in those things, Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 1 about a formless void, just like the star-forming regions we see in space through the Hubble telescope, regions without any real structure to it. Then Moses wrote about an expanse being formed, and from that expanse the earth eventually forms. The English translators of the Bible used the word expanse as the English translation of the Hebrew word, which literally means to beat out or spread out, kind of like pizza dough being tossed in the air. Today's scientists theorize that planets are formed in disks of dust and material that spread out from a cloud with a star forming at the center. Moses wrote Genesis more than 3,000 years ago, and yet it ignores the prevalent theories of the time and shadows the latest science of today. People still have a problem with it being created in six days, though, but that's only because they don't realize that time itself is a physical property that varies with gravity and speed. It's relative. What was the gravity and the speed of the Earth in its infancy while the Sun was being formed? Einstein's theory of relativity solves that problem. But enough about creation. That's child's play, folks. Let's give the Bible a real scientific challenge, a real tough one. Earlier, we were talking about hyperspaces. The concept of hyperspaces, or hyperdimensions, first appeared in the world of science during the late 1890s. It was later developed during the early 1900s, and you can find all kinds of scientific journals and articles about this all over the net. Google Hypercube and prepare to have your brain overloaded. But anyway, the concept of hyperdimensions wasn't around until the late 1890s. We talked earlier about how the Creator would have to be independent of our three-dimensional space-time domain, making him a hyperdimensional being. How would three-dimensional man intellectually react to the concept of something that's more than three dimensions? And is that reaction recorded in the Bible? What kind of reaction are we looking for? To find out, let's go back to the two-dimensional man, Mr. Flat, and address his confusion over the three-dimensional box. Let's say while I'm showing Mr. Flat this three-dimensional cube, I made an attempt to explain to him what it was. How would that go down, since all he can understand are flat squares? He's never even heard the word cube before. So when I show it to him and tell him that he's looking at a cube, all he knows is that the word cube must be just another word for square, because that's all he sees is a flat square. The other five squares of the cube are invisible to him. So I turn the cube around to show him a different side of it. But then he'd say, whoa, it's another cube. Then I'd say, no, Mr. Flat, you're looking at the same cube. Then he'd say, how can that be? I, I see a different square. Then I'd say, well, it is a different square, but it's still the same cube. Then he'd say, huh? Then after turning the cube around four more times to show him all six sides of it, then he'd really be confused. I just saw six different cubes. No, you didn't, Mr. Flat. You saw one cube. What you mean to say is that you saw six different squares. Well, yeah, that's what a cube is, isn't it? A square? No, Mr. Flat, a cube is a cube, but it's made up of six squares. So now Mr. Flat's really confused, so he goes away, mumbling to himself, and he talks about this to all of his two-dimensional buddies, and they get into this huge debate and wind up intellectually separating into groups. Group one is so baffled by the concept that they refuse to acknowledge there's only one cube. They tell Mr. Flat, you know what, if you saw six squares, then there has to be six cubes. 
That's all there is to it. There can't be one cube. That doesn't make any sense. Group number two says, no, no, no. He just thinks he saw six squares. If the cube is only one cube, then it's only one square. It can't be six squares at the same time. That doesn't make any sense. Group three sides with Mr. Flatten says, look, we can't understand the physics of the cube because it exists in a higher dimension than we do. The cube is a single cube, just like Mr. Flat said, but it's also six different squares. So let's call it the hexinity nature of the cube. That may not be something any of us can understand, but at least our terminology will be accurate. I don't know how six squares can be one cube, but it is. So that's how the two-dimensional people would intellectually react to something that's more than two dimensions. Since we now know that our creator must be more than three dimensions, has three-dimensional man ever written of a God whose physical nature caused this same kind of confusion? Only one, folks, the Bible. Over and over again, it stresses the importance of understanding that there is only one God, that he himself is one God. But with our three-dimensional thinking getting in the way, God appears to be three individuals, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, hyperspaces isn't a concept that was understood scientifically until the early 1900s, but the Bible was completed almost 2,000 years ago. So Christianity has had almost 2,000 years to come up with all kinds of labels for this phenomenon. The most popular label today is the Trinity. That's why the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible anywhere. It's a word that came about after the Bible was completed to help settle the controversy over three-dimensional man trying to get his mind around the apparent hyperdimensional attributes of God recorded in the Bible. And to me, that's further evidence of the Bible being accurate. When man invents a God for his own religion, he invents a God he can get his mind around and understand. That's why some religions believe in several gods and other religions believe in only one God with one personality. Only the Bible, folks, records God as being one God with three persons, a hyperdimensional concept that wasn't available to our puny little minds until the 20th century. But that meets the first condition about the science not being dated. The second condition was that all prophecies would have to be 100% accurate. Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be rejected by Israel and accepted by the Gentiles. That was recorded centuries before it ever happened. What makes that impressive is that Isaiah is an Old Testament book, and you can find that verse in any Jewish synagogue. As a matter of fact, many atheists who are of Jewish descent become Christian after they discover it. It blows them away. The Bible predicted that Israel would fall in 70 AD. It did. Jesus is recording saying in the Gospels that the temple in Jerusalem would be so devastated that not a single stone would touch the other. That was fulfilled literally because the stones of the temple were taken and put under great heat to get all the gold off of it. The book of Daniel gave a mathematical prophecy predicting that Israel would rise again on May 14, 1948, to the very day, and it happened. The Bible predicted in latter times there would be an explosion of knowledge. Not a gradual increase, but an explosion of knowledge. For thousands of years, people didn't understand what that meant. But from the days that Egypt ruled the world, all the way up to the 1900s, the rate of travel was on horseback. Then suddenly, in just one century, cars were invented, then airplanes, then jets, then rockets. When Egypt ruled the world, the speed of information was carried either by word of mouth or on horseback. Nothing changed for thousands of years, all the way up to the 20th century. But then suddenly there was radio, then television, then the internet, then satellite cell phones. So after thousands of years of information never moving faster than the speed of horseback, in less than 100 years, information now moves at the speed of light. 
Ezekiel predicted that there would be an alliance between Russia and Iran, and for thousands of years people laughed at that prophecy. But it's happening right now. Right now. Second Timothy predicted that in latter times the love of God within the church would grow cold and that Christians would love themselves more than they love God and then reject the Bible for doctrines of demons. It's happening right now. There's churches all over America with vast amounts of resources and money, but they have little impact on the community because they're spending the money on themselves. You've got racist pastors preaching hate on a weekly basis. Some churches have members who also visit psychics. Others go to mediums to contact the dead, a practice which the Bible has labeled as demonic. And those are just a few examples, folks. I'm barely skimming off the top. There isn't one single prophecy in the Bible that wasn't fulfilled exactly the way it was foretold to happen. The only prophecies that haven't been fulfilled are the ones that are scheduled to happen in our future. So that meets the second condition. The third condition was that the message itself would have to be spread out over a large bandwidth to prevent signal loss, indicating the intelligence of a creator who is outside time. If God is outside time, then he would know what happens to things once they're inside time. They degrade. And if the creator wanted his message to endure thousands of years, he'd spread his message out over a large bandwidth to prevent signal loss. This is a technique that humans only during the 20th century began doing. But the message of the 2,000-year-old Bible is spread out over a large bandwidth. It was written by over 40 guys over thousands of years and contains 66 books. And even though they wrote different accounts with different stories, there isn't one single important issue that isn't spread out all over those 66 books. There's no one chapter on salvation. There's no one chapter on the end times. There's no one chapter on creation. There's no one chapter on spiritual warfare. Everything important is spread out over the entire bandwidth. It's an integrated message system. It's put together almost like a hologram. You see, when you look at a flat picture, what you see is what you get, no matter how long you look at it. But when you look at a hologram, the more you move your head around, the more of the image you see. And the Bible's the same way. You can read one book of the Bible and get pretty much everything you need, but it's flat. If you move around the Bible more, the more depth the message has. Something else about a hologram, when you cut a hole in a flat picture, whatever it was that was in that hole is lost forever, but not on a hologram. If a hole is cut out on a holographic picture, all you have to do is look around the hole. The Bible's the same way. If you rip out a page or dismiss a whole book, everything important is still there. Now, you might lose a little sharpness because you're decreasing the bite rate, but everything important is still there. Even if you ripped out the Gospels, which is the centerpiece of the Bible, you still wouldn't lose the story of the crucifixion because it was prophesied in Isaiah, an Old Testament book written centuries beforehand in great detail. That's why it doesn't bother me when I hear people say, Did you know that so-and-so changed verse 21 in the second chapter of Ecclesiastes back in 720 A.D.? Now, most of the time, stories like that turn out to be false. But... I don't worry about it when I first hear about it because I've got the whole hologram to look at. They're talking about one pixel on a high-definition screen. So that makes the third condition. But since the Bible was written by more than one person, we've got a fourth condition to consider. If more than one human being wrote the text, they all have to agree on everything. There cannot be any discrepancies or contradictions. Because if there are, then that would show that a higher intelligence outside time was not involved in the creation of the message. One of the more popular references that people buy as a companion to the Bible is what is called a Strong's Concordance of the Bible. And this thing is huge, folks. It's a catalog of every single word in the Bible. 
And it really is amazing how consistent the entire Bible is, even with idioms and figures of speech. Now, folks, we're talking about more than a couple thousand years. So cultures change and figures of speech change. And in the case of the Bible, the authors changed. But in spite of that, the Bible is completely consistent in its theme, its doctrine, and even in its idioms and figures of speech. There's places in the Bible where it says God is love. When you get to the Corinthian letter where Paul writes a whole chapter or two about what true love is, it blows people away that if you wanted to, you could slip Jesus' name in everywhere it says love, and it fits perfectly like a glove. I mean, perfectly. And I don't think Paul was intending to do that. In the Gospels, Jesus points to himself and says that he's the rock that the church would be built upon. If you get a Strong's Concordance out and look up the word rock to see every place it shows up in the Bible, it's amazing how in every verse the word rock appears, it could easily symbolize Jesus Christ, even when Jesus doesn't have anything to do with the verse involved. Now, if the Bible were written by a couple of people over 10 years, I'd say no big deal. But this is 40 different authors writing 66 books over thousands of years. Who made sure that there weren't any contradictions or discrepancies? It had to be the one who was outside time. I remember back when they started making computerized photo mosaics and selling them in the stores, how impressed I was with them. These digital photo mosaics are large computerized images of something that's made out of hundreds of smaller images. When you hold the photo mosaic up close, you see side by side individual photos of various things that don't have any relevance to each other. I mean, they can, but they don't have to be. But when you back the photo mosaic away from you, you see a bigger picture like the Golden Gate Bridge or the Mona Lisa or something like that. The way they're made is that a computer takes the image of a Mona Lisa and then divides it into a thousand little squares or more and then numbers them. Then the computer goes through a huge database of thousands of pictures taken from different people all over the world and scans every single one of them to see which one looks the most like square number one. Once it finds a match, it replaces square number one with the new image. Then it repeats the process 999 more times to fill up the rest of the squares. So when the process is complete, you've got 1,000 individual pictures taken by individual photographers that had nothing to do with each other. You know, one picture's a boat, the other's a cat, the other's a beach sunset, the other's a broom leaning against a red barn. Nothing in common. But when you back away from it, it's a digital photo mosaic of the Mona Lisa. The Bible was put together the same way. You've got Moses writing about the exodus from Egypt. You've got Daniel writing about his prayers in the Psalms. You've got Isaiah writing about Israel. You've got Matthew writing about Jesus. Paul wrote about the church. John wrote about the end times. And all of these authors were only focused on the point of their own writings. But when you back away from it, the Bible is a digital photo mosaic of Jesus Christ. That's why it means absolutely nothing to me when I hear people say that you can't trust the Bible because it was written by man. Really? Who's responsible for the digital photo mosaic effect that only today's computers can do? Nobody doubts that a computer built the photo mosaics you see in the store, even though when you look at it closely, you can tell each picture is a normal picture taken by a normal man from somewhere. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. The New Testament contains the story of God's efforts to free man from the enslavement of his own humanity. You've got Paul's letter to the Romans saying that through Adam, the first man, that everyone has inherited mortality and imperfection. Then he builds on that as well as others to point out that this problem is not curable by any action or deed. 
Religion won't fix it either because religion is man's attempt to reach God through his own devices. See, God's problem isn't being judgmental, folks. God's problem is not being able to be imperfect like we are. It's hard for us to imagine because of our limited three-dimensional thinking. But God can't be imperfect. He can't lie. He can't be dishonest. He can't make mistakes. And part of the problem of being perfect is that it prevents him from being able to coexist with others who are imperfect. That's a big problem for him because he created us for relationship. Now, the natural result of something imperfect being in the presence of perfection is instant death. And that's not being judgmental or harsh or mean. It's just the natural way of things. I don't care how nice you are about it. If you get too close to a fire, you're going to get burned. It's not because the fire is judging you. That's just the way it is. That's physics. But since God's perfection also shows up in the perfection of his love, he chose to become the object of a substitute. He came to earth as a human being to take on the burden of being a substitute for our imperfections. That's what the whole virgin birth thing is all about. It wasn't to impress people. Oh, look, a virgin birth. Wow, what a miracle. I mean, it involved that, but the reason why it happened was because it had to be that way. Because imperfection, or our sin nature, is carried genetically through the male, through the father. That's why the virgin birth had to happen. And we'll get into all of that later. The point is, God didn't tell us to come to him. He came to us. He came here. And I mean all the way from the hyperdimensional perfect existence that he was used to into the three-dimensional time-trapped dimension of our world in a human body. And he taught people that's who and what he was. And he also taught that he was to die as a substitute for our mortality and imperfections and sin. If he had been a normal, mortal man, his death would have only paid for his own imperfections. But since he was God, he survived paying the penalty of death. Well, Josh, what's this got to do with the photomosaic properties of the Bible and everything? You're kind of going off on a tangent. Well, it's because this is a theme, folks, that's repeated over and over again through the whole Bible, starting in Genesis and all the way through. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's hidden. In the Garden of Eden, after the first humans fell and became imperfect, they tried to fix it on their own by wearing fig leaves. That's the first act of religion in world history, Adam and Eve trying to bridge the gap between themselves and God through their own ideas of what they thought God would want. But no human can bridge the gap between humanity and God. God has to do that, and he did. But after the famous Garden of Eden story, you come to a boring chapter in Genesis that most people skip because it's nothing more than a long family tree. It's a bloodline, a genealogy of Adam's offspring going all the way to Noah. But what we have today is the English translation of that chapter, with the original Hebrew names being preserved. What if you translated those names into English too? Adam being the first man, his name means man. Adam's son, Seth, means he is appointed because after Cain killed Abel, Adam and Eve had another son and she named him Seth because she said God has appointed me another son. You translate all of the names in the family tree, you get a sentence. It says, man is appointed, mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. And there you've got the prophecy of the Messiah hidden in the names of the family tree recorded in Genesis. Later you have the famous story of Abraham being asked by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. God doesn't endorse child sacrifice. He was playing out a prophecy and Abraham knew that's what he was doing because he told his son Isaac on the way to the place he was going to sacrifice him that God would provide himself a sacrifice. And when they got there, God did. 
And then Abraham named the place, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen, the Lord will provide. And then 2,000 years later, on that same spot, another father offered up his son, Jesus Christ. By then, it was named Golgotha. In the Latin, it's called Calvary. The whole Bible's about Jesus Christ, folks. It's about God bridging the gap between himself and humanity. Humanity doesn't bridge the gap. We wouldn't be able to do it, even if we knew how. That's why God hates religion, because that's all it is, is man's attempt to bridge the gap. And it's futile, it's vain, and it's arrogant. Oh, another thing about looking at a photo mosaic. If a picture winds up in the mix that doesn't belong, it stands out like a sore thumb. If a photo mosaic of, say, the Mona Lisa has a green dot on her nose, and you get close and see that a picture of a fern plant is causing it, then you know the computer made a mistake and that picture doesn't belong there. That's why it's so easy to spot frauds if you know this book. If you don't know it, then everything's up for grabs. But if you do know it, then whenever anything comes along that promotes itself of God that isn't, it becomes obvious because it sticks out like a sore thumb. But only to the people who've seen the whole photo mosaic. In the 66 books of the Bible, there are no contradictions. Someone writes a 67th book and says, hey, this one belongs in the mix. And then it's got information in it that contradicts what's in the first 66. Then the 67th doesn't belong. But if it did belong and the rest of us are missing out, we really aren't missing out because remember God spreads out his whole message over the entire bandwidth. If that 67th book belongs, all it's going to do is add more bandwidth to the entire message, making it even sharper. If it doesn't belong, it adds interference and makes it confusing. And that's how you know if it belongs or not. Something else that makes the Bible an awesome book, and this should probably go under the prophecy condition, maybe not, but it anticipates every false doctrine that has ever been on the planet Earth. That's why nothing surprises me when crazy stuff happens in the news that's related to the world of religion. There's a church in Canada, as a matter of fact, that just recently decided to strip the name Jesus Christ from all their songs and hymns. Just last Easter Sunday, they didn't celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They celebrated the resurrection of hope. A church, folks, stripping the name Jesus Christ from all their songs and doctrines. Guess what? I wasn't surprised because 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 said that that was exactly what would happen. It said, although they will hold a form of religion, they will deny and be strangers to the power of it. You can't be a Christian without Jesus Christ, but the Bible said people would try it anyway. So I wasn't shocked when that news report came out. Really knowing and understanding this book, folks, will put you ahead of the game, whether it's politics, religion, psychology, human nature, history, life as a whole. People are running around talking about how they can't believe Russia and Iran are actually allies now. How did that happen? What's going on? Well, Ezekiel said it would happen. I first discovered that little nugget back in the mid-1990s, over 10 years ago. I didn't know when in human history it was going to happen, but I knew it would happen. Then last year, front page of the newspapers, Vladimir Putin standing right next to Ahmadinejad, both with big smiles on their faces, headline in bold print, Russia seeks to build ties with Iran. What shocked me wasn't that it happened, but that I saw it happen. <laughs> and there's more to follow. So that meets the fourth condition. There's actually a fifth one that I never would have thought of being necessary, but God himself threw it in there anyway, and this one will blow you away. There's sections here and there all over the Bible that have attributes in the text itself that are not only beyond the dimensional scope of the humans who wrote it, but literally beyond the abilities of any human being to write. Here's a task for you. Here's your homework assignment. Write a paragraph about anything you want, and it can be as short as you want or as long as you want. But you have to follow these rules. The total number of words has to be evenly divisible by seven. 
the total number of nouns that you use has to be evenly divisible by seven. And if you use the word the in your paragraph anywhere, the number of times you use it has to be evenly divisible by seven. It might take some work, but you could do it, right? Oh, wait a minute. I'm not finished. The total number of words that begin with a vowel has to be evenly divisible by seven. And the total number of words that begin with a consonant has to be evenly divisible by seven. That makes it a lot harder, but you can still do that, right? I'm not finished. Count all the letters in your paragraph. The total number of letters has to be evenly divisible by seven. The total number of vowels has to be evenly divisible by seven. And the total number of consonants has to be evenly divisible by seven. Getting tougher? We're just getting started. When you're writing this paragraph, if you use any words more than once, the number of words that you use more than once must also be evenly divisible by seven. If you use synonyms, in other words, the same word, but with a different meaning, the number of synonyms has to be evenly divisible by seven. And of the words that do have synonyms that you didn't use, there has to be a number of them that's evenly divisible by seven. If you include names in your paragraph, the number of names has to be evenly divisible by seven. The number of male names has to be evenly divisible by seven. And the number of female names has to be evenly divisible by seven. There's more, but I'll make this project easy on you. Do you think you could do it? Me neither. But all of those attributes and more are met in the original Greek of the first 17 verses in Matthew. There are supercomputers in various colleges around the world that are trying to write a paragraph with all of these attributes, and they've been trying, I can't remember exactly how many tries per second, for the last decade or so. And they can't do it. And yet, there it is in black and white in the original Greek of the first 17 verses of Matthew. The Bible is chocked full of stuff like that all over it. Why is it like that? What does it mean? Absolutely nothing. It's just God winking his eye at the reader, letting you know that even though he used human beings to get his message out there, the message is from him. So with the Bible, none of the science is dated. All prophecies that have been fulfilled were fulfilled perfectly and on time. The entire message is spread out over a large bandwidth, giving the Bible a high-resolution quality. It's consistent without contradictions, and it has evidence of supernatural engineering. That's why I take it seriously, and that's why I trust it. So we'll be going through the entire Bible, verse by verse, word by word. I say the entire Bible, provided that there's enough human history left. We'll be going through the entire Bible. It's divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, and everything in the New Testament is after the birth of Christ. Both Testaments, Old and New, are then divided into three parts. First is the historical narratives, then there's individual writings, such as poetry or personal letters from one person to another. Then there's the prophetical writings, dealing mostly with the future. But don't let those divisions fool you. There's all three in all three and in both the Old Testament and the New. And remember, it's one book with a message that's been integrated by God himself. Some people say that the most useless page in the entire Bible is the page that separates the Old Testament from the New. And sometimes I agree with them. It's one book. People often wonder what the best translation is. Well, if you speak Hebrew or Greek, then those are the best translations. Get you a Hebrew or Greek Bible. But since I don't speak Hebrew or Greek, I need an English translation. But the English language has got some serious problems, folks. It's got way too many synonyms. I can tell you that I love my family and then turn right around and say that I love eating at Applebee's. It's not the same thing, but I use the same word anyway. 
Greek and Hebrew doesn't have that problem. They actually have two different words for where I just use the word love. So when you read the Bible in English, you're losing a little bit of the resolution. So the best thing to do is to have more than one English translation. And don't worry, all of them are translated from the original Greek and Hebrew. A lot of people think that each translation is ripped off from the most previous English translation. That's not true. Each time they translate it into English, they go back to the original negatives and remaster it into the new language. A lot of people, for whatever reason, feel that they're being blasphemous if they aren't reading of the King James. The King James translation has its values. It's beautifully written. It's the English translation that's been around the longest. And the biggest value to the King James is that you can use it with a Strong's Concordance. And by the way, a Strong's Concordance is also a necessity. But if you really want to know the Bible, you get other English translations. Because with the King James, not only do you have the English language taking away from the original meaning, but it's the English language of the 17th century. Now, I'm not saying throw it away, but you need more than that. A good English translation of the Bible is the New American Standard Bible. My favorite is the Amplified Bible, because instead of deciding which English word best applies to whatever Hebrew or Greek word was originally written, when the Amplified translates it, if the English word is one of those vague English words with multiple meanings, the Amplified writes the best English word it can come up with to match, but then puts in parentheses the Strong's Concordance definition of that word. And that'll save you a lot of legwork and a lot of time. For example, in John 3.16, where it says, Whoever believes in him, the Amplified writes in parentheses next to the word believe, adheres to, relies upon, and trusts in. So that's been my favorite translation because I want to know it. I mean, really know it. Another good translation, if you just want a quick and fast grasp, is the Living Bible. It's not a good study help, but it's kind of like the Cliff Notes version of the Bible. If you just want to speed through a book of the Bible to get a feel for it, Use the Living Bible, but if you want a better understanding of it, let it take root. Read it again with your New American Standard or Amplified Bible. Stay away from the NIV, though. My gosh, the NIV. That translation has got more bugs in it than Microsoft Windows. And also stay away from politically correct Bibles that have been selectively edited and tailored to prevent offending people. It's ridiculous. I get aggravated when I go into a Christian bookstore and find Bibles in there that are called the Women's Bible or the men's Bible, or the Bible just for teens, or the African-American Bible. Don't waste your time with all that crap. Just get a good English translation of the Bible. Get a King James Version with a Strong's Concordance, or get the New American Standard Bible, or get the Amplified Bible, or get the Living Bible. My honest advice to you would be to get all four of them. I know that's going to be a lot of money, but it's a worthy investment. It's worth it. You know, when a great movie comes out, do you buy the $9 version or do you get the two-disc special edition with all the deleted scenes and behind-the-scenes documentaries and audio commentaries? Well, do the Bible that way. Quit spending hundreds of dollars on video games and get into something more real. And whatever Bible you get, when you start reading, don't skip over the background information about the author of the book and the time period. Find out what was going on when that book was written. Once you start getting into the Bible, you're going to find out. It's very addictive.